What's up, everybody? It's Tommy Runs, and this is the Run, Eat, Sleep show, episode number 92. Uh, I can't believe we're quickly approaching 100 episodes. Thank you so much for always tuning in, always sharing and caring about the the the, uh, the podcast um, and just sticking in with me from the beginning. So um, I've actually had someone recently like find out about the show through a new episode and he decided to go back to episode number one and start watching it all the way from the beginning so like randomly he'll post like oh this is a great episode and it'll be like episode number 10 so if you're listening to this this um this now i really do appreciate you for doing that and um so i had some really great guests on in the beginning so yeah if you haven't checked it out or you're new to the podcast as well go back and there are some decent um episodes i think i'm getting better at it but uh still some really good people were on the show earlier on um in the show uh today's episode uh, is with Jordan Marie brings three white horses Whitstone. Um, I knew of her uh, through Instagram um, and really cool posts and, and initiatives that she's been a part of and and you know, spearheaded. So it was like really cool to finally get to meet her at TRE in Austin and ask her in person. You know, that's really like the key. Like if you can grab somebody like in person and be like, hey, can you be on my show? Um, sometimes they'll just say, yeah, sure. And then you follow up with them. And in this in this case, it was really great. I was able to kind of kick with her and, um, and meet her son um, and get her to agree to come on the show. I mean, I didn't push too hard, but she said, yep, it'd be great. And she ended up coming on the show, had a really great conversation, um, covered so many things. We covered prayer runs and her history, you know, growing up a runner, um, growing up a uh, native in Maine that was just outside of, you know, where she's from and where her people are, um, having to deal with issues uh, growing up and in racism growing up as well. Um, and then just talking about overcoming addiction and disorders and finding yourself and using nature in, um, in the outdoors to do so. Um, all the initiatives that she's working on and helping with and talked more about uh, MMIW, which is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Um, it's really a, people as well, but um, that, that push or that um, I don't even know what to call it, but that movement um, and awareness is is called MMIW. So check that out. It's missing and murdered indigenous women, and just the the story behind that, the issue behind that, the why it is continuing to happen, how it gets perpetuated. Um, we talked about land uh, land acknowledgments and where finding out how how to find out where you run, like what land. Uh, you're running on. I mean, this land was was people's before it was ours. Um, and really just acknowledging that and taking the time to kind of connect with uh, with the land that you run and that you use and that we thrive off of. Um, covered so many different things in this episode. Um, really walked through the beginning for her, how running became a thing all the way to where we are now and what we see now. Um, such a strong and amazing woman. And I'm thankful 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 that she was able to join the show um hopefully you enjoyed this episode as much as i enjoyed having the conversation with her i'm inspired to continue to push forward um with the things that i'm trying to do for my community um because people like this exist so um i know that maybe i won't be as awesome as her um but i can 
continue to push forward and anything helps. So thank you so much, uh, Jordan, again, for, for joining the uh, podcast. Check this episode out. Make sure you follow her. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Uh, make sure you also follow us on Instagram, the Run, Eat, Sleep show on Instagram, and then follow Jordan as well. I'll have it in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Check it out. Hey, Jordan, how are you? Hey, I am good. How are you? I'm doing really good. Doing really good. I uh, just ran and it's I'm in Michigan. Um, it's like 20 something degrees. <laughs> so it's cold. Um, do you, I, I want because I've uh, before we get into like the interview part of it, I got a, a quick question for you. So um, Chris Lampin Crowell, are you familiar with him? Um, he's uh, so he's he, uh, one of the co-founders of the RIDC running industry diversity coalition and so lately every time i've heard him speak um like open up a podcast not a podcast but like a a panel or something he always takes the moment to start by saying where he's from and the land that he runs on Mm -hmm. and then also acknowledges where he is like right at that moment um are you familiar what'd you say i do the same practice Okay, well, I need to figure I need to figure this out. So um, where do you know where like what land I run on by chance? Like, is it? Um, I know of some friends that are Anishinaabe. So I know a lot of them are up that way. But you can go download the native land app. Okay, and put in the city where you're living and it'll populate. the indigenous lands and the spelling. And then I'll also provide links for you to learn more about whose land that you're on. But also please be mindful that technological tools and stuff like that are always developing and there are sometimes mistakes and we are always still learning even as indigenous peoples, you know, where our ancestral lands are and whose, mm-hmm. whose lands they are and the, um, the the nomadic lifestyle of some of the indigenous peoples when they moved with the seasons. So it can kind of fluctuate in different areas a bit, but um, sometimes the the apps or even sometimes just Googling doesn't always like know that specific information. So um, definitely Googling more and just learning more about the tribes that are local to your community and learning from their pages and their histories um, will hopefully help pinpoint even more um, and identifying whose lands that you're on. Like for just for like for the people that aren't necessarily familiar with like the like the um, seems simple, like seems kind of simple, but like the reasoning for the reason for doing that for like just kind of taking that moment to announce, you know, and, um, and use that practice, like what's the importance there? Um, mm-hmm. And, and then also like in that answer, like, have you received like any pushback, I guess, like in, in those moments when you're, um, cause it's not like a, Hey, that, you know, you're not announcing it. So everyone would feel uncomfortable. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it is what it is. But um, if you could answer that, that'd be great. And I'll just stop rambling. <laughs> oh, for sure. No, this is actually yeah. one of my favorite topics to talk about because oh, well, let's stay here um, for a <laughs> my organization, Rising Hearts, has a program called Running on Native Lands Initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, the importance of a land acknowledgement is to honor and to remember indigenous peoples since that have been here since time immemorial. And sadly, we live in a society 
that has perpetually erased Indigenous peoples from the narrative and have created their own narrative of who they think Indigenous peoples are without the creation or input of Indigenous peoples. And as Indigenous peoples today, we are constantly fighting our own erasure in that aspect and in that conversation. Um, you know, even just, I think it was like three weeks ago, my mom came back from a doctor's appointment and the woman literally, sorry, here's my cat. Um, the woman literally said, I thought you all were dead because they were asking my mom if she was Asian or if she, what, basically they were asking what she was. And sadly, me and my mom, we never ever get the first answer. Like we never get the first response from someone guessing who we are accurate. It's always something that is not indigenous Native American or American Indian. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of ignorance. There's a lack of lack of information, but that's because in the education system, it's very whitewashed and romanticized about who indigenous peoples are. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't help when you have the narrative of like Pocahontas and the Disney movie that portrays a very inaccurate portrayal of Pocahontas. That's not even her real name. Her real name is Matoica. And she was a young little girl who was given away to be married to a white man. Um, but that story completely romanticizes her story. But we consider her to be our first Me Too. We consider her to be our first MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. Um, and so that's a lot of the stereotypes, a lot of the narratives that we're constantly fighting against. Um, and so land acknowledgments is just a simple way and a simple act, especially in changing your own behavior and your own perspective and your knowledge of honoring Indigenous peoples past, present and future. Um, but it doesn't stop there. And through our program, Running on Native Lands Initiative, when we work with a variety of partners, especially when we do a lot of EDI, JEDI consultations and collaborations to improve upon the already EDI and Jedi initiatives that a lot of these brands companies are doing um, is that it's not just a check in the box. You have to go the extra mile and being able to do more than just a land acknowledgement. It doesn't just stop there. It, you have to continue your education and awareness about indigenous peoples. You know, we are, we are not a monolith. You can't just lump all indigenous peoples together into one group. We have um, over 570 tri federally recognized tribes. We have over 70 state recognized tribes and we have hundreds more tribes that didn't even get a chance to have any sort of recognition. And that recognition sadly relies upon, you know, federal funding, like being able to support the communities and the programs and sustainable work that they're all doing. Um, but it's just a simple act to acknowledge, to unlearn and relearn whose lands that you're on and to put it to the very foundation that this country was, you know, made off the genocide of indigenous peoples and the enslavement of black peoples. Those two histories are very intertwined. Um, and we need to remember that. And that's something that you don't get taught in school. You get taught the romanticized version, the very cherry picked um, way to communicate that to students. Um, and so as students, we grow up thinking, you know, these, this is the way, this is how it's been. And um, indigenous peoples aren't in the present and we very much are. Um, yeah. So that's what a land acknowledgement is. It's just a simple act to be able to honor, but it, I really encourage people to not just stop with that. It's how are you going to integrate yourself into the community of indigenous peoples? How are you gonna open these spaces up to be more inclusive, to create a safer environment, not just for indigenous peoples, but for everyone, especially when we're talking about the running and outdoor community, which we're both part of, um, but how, how can we always do better? 
and especially for our next generations because much of the heart work that's happening here today, a lot of the ceilings that we're trying to break, a lot of the walls we're trying to, to take down and rebuild, you know, that's all for the next generations. And that's what's something that's super important to me as a new mom. And I have a 10 and a half month old is all the work I'm doing now is so hopefully he doesn't have to do any of it. He can be unapologetically himself, be indigenous, be who he wants to be, and he'll have the full support and he'll have the visibility of his community and and be supported and to be heard and protected. Yeah, well, um, thank you for that because um, you know because when I hear it, uh, this is kind of like a half baked you know thought I feel, but it um, to me when when you take that step to to do a land acknowledgement um, or at least learn more about where you live or where you run specifically um to the i guess like the way that like western society has kind of treats the outdoors um you know there's i've most i've only i started running in 2018 so and just until recently like i'm starting to kind of look around and and, and appreciate you know the outdoors a little bit more than even in the beginning of my running journey, you know, and it was just go outside, run and come back, you know? And mm-hmm. I think with like that step to, to kind of, to find out who, uh, who the land belonged to or belongs to is like a step in the direction of, of like actually like recognizing the, you know, the planet in, in earth in itself, just to, to actually connect because there's so many people that have like these great stories of like how running changed their lives. And typically it doesn't happen like um, those like deep spiritual connections to, to the planet don't come from like running on a track or the pavement typically, you know, it's like those it's people that have like got out on trails or someone that's just very, you know, conscious, conscious of like, you know, the, the trees and the wind and the, you know, like the, you know, that, but um, the more we know about the lands that we're on, I feel like the more you just inherently connect to like who we are, you know, in general, because um, we're supposed we're supposed to thrive off of you know off and with the with with the earth anyway. Um, exactly, and that's why I always say um, one of the solutions to I think for us to have a better future and for us to intersectionally and collaboratively work together for that future is that we need to live in kinship with the lands to live in kinship with each other and that is a a relationship a kinship a balance that we need to work back to and i feel like because of colonialism because of capitalism because of consumerism it has created so many levels of disconnection for us Mm -hmm. as just individuals because we're focusing on our job or trying to just make it to the day-to-day. We're doing all of these things that are kind of clouding and polluting, you know, this inherent relationship that we have with the land. Believe. Yeah. Um, and like that's as indigenous peoples, we have this saying, especially for me, I'm Lakota, and it was always said at the end of a prayer, after end of ceremony, of Matakuye Yasin. We are all related or all my relations. And for me growing up, that and, and now that we're in this, this culture of having words to things that we can now understand what that means. Um, so like the Kimberly Crenshaw, her theory, intersectional theory, you know, when I saw that intersectionality and started learning more about it the last several years, I'm like, wow, like as an indigenous person, Matakuyo Yasin is that version of it from the indigenous 
perspective, at least from my life. Um, And so that's our view of not only protecting ourselves, our community of indigenous peoples, but it's protecting everything, every living being. We are all equal to each other. We are not above and below. And I think when we have these levels of disconnection, it's because, you know, we have everything going on in our lives. And if we could just take moments each day um, to give back to the lands and to foster that connection and reconnect with the lands and with our surroundings, even if it's just to meditate outside, I think we can all holistically, um, you know, see a sense of hopefully like more positivity, more connection, and hopefully more happiness because you're being outside and the lands can give back to you in so many great and purposeful ways. And that's something that we promote too and really talk about is, yes, we bring land acknowledgements to races. We work with race directors, brands and companies to do this, to understand this more and how can they give back more. But it's also for the people that are participating in these events. It's not just working with the people that have the money, the people that have this kind of power or control or these platforms. It's also having people that are participating in these races or events to hopefully be introduced to a whole new perspective that we can reconnect with the lands and each other and we can actually you know disconnect from the outside disconnect from even the headphones um mm-hmm. if you're yeah. someone that likes to run with music or or anything like that but just spend those moments of understanding like wow i'm doing this race but i did not know that these were chumash lands and we had so many people from the she is beautiful 5k and 10k in santa barbara this past year who had never heard of a land acknowledgement who didn't know that they had indigenous peoples within their community they were really happy that their kids were present because they actually got to listen to chumash people giving this land acknowledgement and sharing a deeper history of their community there and how it led to displacement, to relocation, to some of these hardships, but also some of the successes and things that their community has also gone through and succeeded in. Um, So they they were really grateful to have learned that and, and testimonials that came from that race of people just saying like, I had no idea and that's because of my ignorance or now I have, you know, now new races that I go to, I try and learn whose lands that I'm visiting, that I am a guest on. Um, and how can I give back? And we have people saying like, oh, they looked for a native youth organization locally or a health organization that's indigenous led or a tribe or another organization. And they like donated back into that organization to support their work and what's going on. Um, so there are a variety of ways to not only benefit from having this new perspective of whose lands that you're on, but also fostering a deeper connection with yourself in the lands is just super important. I think incredibly healthy for our own mental health and well-being. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think that you, number one, you're really good at this, by the way. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that that, that connection, um, the, which kind of what you ended with there, like that connection and and realizing how like how um, just for lack of a better word, connected we are to um, to the to to our surroundings, to the planet. Um, I, the way that we've kind of like cut that off, like that communication, is partly I feel like a lot of the reason why we why it's hard for us to connect as people. Um, and it's well, it's easier for us to dismiss other cultures in you know because we don't have like that ultimate connection to the earth, and um, I, yeah, I just feel like the more that's why I, I would kind of dare to say that 
why like a trail running culture is so much different than road running racing culture. It's just in, one's not worse than the other, I would maybe, but I would definitely say that, you know, the, the fact that you're, you know, you're out there in the woods and really with nature and really get to experience it and interact with it every single step, you know, like it's not, there's no random spot where you're like running on concrete, you know, like you're out yeah. there, you're very aware of where you are. Um, and in those moments, like you're, you're really stripped down to like that primal connection of like where, where we came from, you know, and, um, yeah, and everything, I'm not even going to keep going because I think everything that you said about it was just so, was just so beautiful. Um, and I challenged myself after this to kind of learn more about like where, you know, what land I'm on and how I can, what I can do to, to kind of connect that more. Also, mm -hmm. um, connect to the people whose land it is in, in some, some way, shape or form. Um, but then just to jump back, like to, you know, hop back in the past really quick. I, I mean, you are a runner. Um, and I'd love to kind of know a little bit more about like how running became a thing for you. Um, from what I know that you're, you're you kind of grew up, you grew up in a running family, which mm -hmm. is really cool and awesome to hear. Um, I'll just speak first because it'll be much shorter. Um, my, my, my family, um, and most black folks that I know, don't have like this connection to running, you know, before themselves. Like most of my friends, they're the first people in their first person in their family to like do this thing for fun mm -hmm. or to race or for health or anything. Um, and growing up, I didn't see any, you know, black people running in our neighborhood. It was like running is a white sport. So why would we do that? You know, that's not our thing. Um, but to hear that you, have like generations of runners i think was just like the dopest thing in the world to to hear so if you could kind of tell that story about like your family and how running became a thing for you that'd be i'd really appreciate it thank you for sharing your story and i feel like that's a very common story which i'm sure we could probably deep dive into that a little bit yeah, more yeah um just on sure. a community <laughs> level but um for my story, you know, I'm a fourth generation runner and my great grandfather was a long distance runner. My grandfather, Niall Brings, was a middle distance runner and my mom was a sprinter. So growing up until I was 10 years old, I didn't run just except in gym class and that sort of thing. But I knew my family were runners and I thought that was just really cool. I thought it was um I was hoping I could be a runner someday, um, but I was too into like wanting to try every other sport. And luckily, like my whole family never pressured me. They never forced me to be a runner. And they kept saying, you don't have to. You can try whatever you want. Um, but I was never coordinated enough for any other sport. And so after hearing lots of comments from gym teachers and other community people just saying, like, you definitely are a runner because, like, you <laughs> excel at the running parts within these sports. Yeah. Um, and so, so, you get, so you get to the ball quickly, but you just don't know what to do with it. <laughs> you don't know what to do with it. Right. Um, air balls every time. Oh, um, no. <laughs> yeah, just horrible. Not, not I can play and pretend to have fun, but I'm just, like, too competitive, too. And it's just, like, I'd rather not play if I can't yeah, be good right. at it. <laughs> I hear that all day. <laughs> um, so at that time, when I was 10 years old, we were living in Maine, which is a big culture shock for me when we moved away from my community in South Dakota um, and we came back for the summer and my grandfather was about to go for a run and everyone knew him as the runner. He was running from Chamberlain over to Okoma and like all different parts around outside of Chamberlain, just running 
long, long runs. Um, so everyone knew him as a runner. And he was like, hey, do you want to go for a run with me? And I just was like, ah, really? Thought it was so cool. And I just look up to my grandfather so much because he has always prioritized our youth and just health and well-being uh, in a central part of his life. So I just thought it was so cool. I was like, sure. It was a two-mile run. His house was at the top of a hill. And so we did a mile out and then it was a mile back uphill. And I was like, it's horrible. Yeah. I'm like, this is not fun. And so um, I kept with running though. And that's what got me into doing like uh, cross country in sixth grade and, um, you know, just doing summer track through elementary back, school. Back in Maine. Uh, yeah, back in Maine. Yeah. And just stuck with it, you know, and I just thought it was really cool to be part of this really cool family club. And um, they were really supportive of it. And definitely the nerd side of me was just always geeking out with my grandpa of like splits and like guessing, mm -hmm. watching races on TV and guessing who's going to win or guessing yeah. like the kind of pace that they're on. Um, so that was definitely a really fun memory and pastime um, with was, my grandfather. What was he like? He was super tall. Um, and just real lanky, but he was just so youthful at the same time. And, um, he just had this really cute, funny laugh that I can still hear to this day. Um, that always brings me so much joy because it just brings so much childhood memories of me being with him. And I had a lot of time with him growing up when my mom was putting herself through nursing school and had to live away from me. So I lived with my grandparents for a while. Um, and it was, oh, we always loved cars. So he always had these like muscle cars that he was always trying to like fix up and you'd always enter him into car shows and that sort of thing. And he definitely liked the attention of like driving around in his like loud muscle hot rod car. Um, but yeah, he was just super funny and he just yeah. was always took care of himself, prioritized his health and, um, you know, sadly, he had to deal with cancer for about nine years until eventually it took him. And um, that was in 2016. And so that's kind of what changed my life in a big sense of becoming a full time like advocate. I don't really like saying activist, but an advocate and a community organizer was because of him, because that was my way to grieve and to turn that sadness and what I was contemplating of like, how can I ever run again without him? Like mm -hmm. just felt like it had no meaning because he introduced me to it. And um, mm -hmm. so I took that pain. I took that, that grief and just turned it into something that I could just commit a hundred percent to. And that's when I started community organizing and organizing marches and rallies to stop the Dakota access pipeline and climate justice initiatives and a bunch of stuff in DC when I was living there. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's who he was like. He just was such an inspiration and everyone loved him and he just, gave back to the youth so much. And so that's what really affirmed me of wanting to become a community organizer is to like fight for the next generations and to carry on his legacy that he was doing um, <clears throat> and doing it myself. Was, was he really connected um, to, to the, to your culture and uh, to your, your ancestry? So he grew up in the boarding school era and I don't know if you've heard anything yeah. about that. Um, yeah he was forced into a boarding school. And so when he grew up and had kids, my mom and my uncle, um, he chose not to share the language and not to have them be part of their culture for fear of, you know, them being ridiculed and mocked or potentially forced into boarding schools or just other things done to them. Um, actually, 
actually sorry to cut you. I, I know I'm familiar with I'm familiar with the, with it, but um, what was that? You know the the boarding you know the the boarding school. Um, yeah, yeah. So the era of the boarding schools and here in the states and the residential schools, um, as well as missions, um, those were opportunities of the governments to steal children, indigenous children from their families and force them into these boarding schools to, as it was called, kill the Indian, save the man, to basically make them become more civilized and make them as white as possible in the ways that they can be made white. And oftentimes their hair was cut. They were forced to never speak their language again, or they were beaten. Um, they're I mean, they pretty open. Like this was open. Like that was the slogan for it. It wasn't like a, you know, this is documented in proud and proud of it. Yep. Yep. This is what, <laughs> this is what we're seeing today. And just since May of 2021 last year, where the Kamloops residential school up in Canada, um, they unearthed 215 Indigenous children and babies' bodies from a mass grave on a residential school property. And to date now, there have been over 10,078 unearthed Indigenous children and babies' bodies from these boarding schools and residential schools of properties in Canada and in the United States since May of 2021 last year. Um, so this is what happens, you know, his family, my grandfather, were threatened with being put in jail and all that kind of thing. These boarding schools often started around September, end of September. So that's what's created an awareness campaign called Every Child Matters Orange Shirt Day, which brings visibility to this issue and this really heartbreaking legacy of boarding schools and residential schools because September 30th was often the day that the school year began. So all these children are being stolen around that time and being forced into these schools. Often children tried to escape. Um, some never made it home, but also never made it back to the school. So there are so many um, bodies that have, haven't been found. Um, some were beaten, some were molested, some were murdered. Um, there's just a really troubling reality and heartbreaking legacy to this issue. And the, the church, the government's need to be held accountable and there still hasn't been any accountability. So if anyone that's listening to this and wants to learn more about it, there's a podcast um, by Connie Walker, an indigenous woman from Canada who talks about St. Michael's um, and it's about her father's story. Um, and she also has another podcast about missing and murdered indigenous peoples. And she finds that the two people that she has two seasons about are all intersecting with their past and the people that they're close to have a connection to the boarding school, residential schools, and how a lot of that has perpetuated the intergenerational trauma that indigenous peoples and so many other um, people of color and marginalized communities are still continuing to heal from and work through today. Um, so that's the boarding schools and residential schools history. And so that's the reason why my grandfather didn't teach. Um, he could still speak it fluently. He still practiced it and he didn't lose that, which was, I thought, so beautiful and powerful and resilient. Um, but he didn't teach it to my mom or my uncle. So, um, I know words and bits of things and I'm on my like learning journey to, um, hopefully be able to learn that so I can teach my son and hopefully we can learn together. Mm -hmm. Um, but that is something that I don't want to lose and I don't want my, my son to lose that. And I want that to be able to continue on, um, especially since so many indigenous languages are at risk of, um, being lost, sadly. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the history of the boarding schools. Okay. Um, well, yeah. I mean, 
I just wanted to kind of find out a little bit more. I mean, it seemed like you were very close. I mean, you were very close to your grandfather. Um, and, you know, I, I've, oftentimes we, in our own stories, I mean, you've mentioned him before, obviously, but in our own stories, we sometimes forget, like, um, like where 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 we came from you know like kind of immediate like what what type of person we are and why we ended up doing these things and why we speak the way or are passionate about certain things um and i it i know it was tough for a few to lose him and then kind of like lose what your relationship was to running um what made you like decide to like to not let the running thing go because it was you know your connection to your grandfather but what was it that's that told you like let's running's a thing for you let's just keep pushing that direction it was was because of him him. it was to connect with him in that way um spiritually on those runs and that it's not about having to train for something or hit splits or anything like that that was the fun part for me and that was the fun part for him and i that we connected on um but it was about if this is the only way for me to really fully be present and think of him or feel him in that run, then I'm going to continue running. And so that's actually what made me stay with running and not take a break. It was, you know, you know, we had his funeral. I was still running every single day, grieving and trying to turn that in some sort of positive way and and knowing that he would be probably disappointed if I had stopped running because of him. Um, so yeah, that's what brought me back to it and made sure that like, no, you got to keep running. You got to keep doing this. And um, you got goals that you want to hit and you got things that you want to do with it and hopefully make an impact or inspire more people and, and create community that way. So that's what I continue to do. And over time, since 2016, since he passed away, um, that's slowly evolved to really intersecting running with advocacy and a lot of the advocacy work that I was doing. Um, and then all of that kind of went full blown in 2019 when I ran the Boston marathon for 26 women, uh, missing and murdered indigenous women. And then, so like in, in some of the, the, the advocacy part, um, you know, obviously came from like your family in the, the type of people that they were. Uh, but then also, I mean, and when you went to Maine, I mean, obviously culture shock big time, like you said. Um, and I've I've lived I lived in Massachusetts for six, seven years. So, I mean, I came from the Detroit area and then I had some pretty some severe culture shock as well. But I mean, I was an adult by then. So it wasn't as like it wasn't that big of a deal for me. But to go as like a young woman and have this huge shift in like who's around you. Um, there had to be, I would assume, like some type of, you know, issues and, and treatment that kind of like crafted who we see today. Like what what was it like running and going to school in, in, in Maine? Yeah. So when we left, like I said, it was a big culture shock. I was so used to being around my community and seeing other people that looked like me um, to going to a place that had tons of trees because South Dakota has flat prairie Rolling hills. Okay. I guess um, I, I, I guess I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but going to Maine, surrounded by trees. So it was a little bit claustrophobic for a while. Um, but you know, oh. transitioning to meeting new kids was okay. But I started learning as I was making friends and like being invited over to their places. Cause if I had the words to define things that I have today to put back then, 
it would be prejudice. It would be racism. It would be all these other things um, that I was experiencing when I was little that, you know, wondering why parents weren't liking me or saying that I was a bad kid and a bad influence when I had never done anything wrong Mm -hmm. Um, or to hearing comments because I was dating a white man and all of their friends were saying all these really ignorant racist things asking about like my skin color and all that kind of stuff. Um, So it was definitely made very apparent where nothing was really ever said directly to me, but Mm -hmm. I still ended up finding out. Um, And then middle school, I experienced a hate crime. And after filing a police report and like dealing with all of that, it was just chalked up to, well, kids are being kids. Well, I don't think adults that were 18 years old with knives and brass knuckles and threatening to beat your white friend up and calling them a prairie N-word, that's not kids being kids. Like, that's intentional. That was terrifying. And if it wasn't for the bravery of my friends saying run at that moment where I could run and they weren't close to me, I ran and took off to my dad's office. Um, So I was really shocked with all of this kind of behavior around me and not understanding it. And then going back to visit South Dakota, I had another perspective that I saw because I knew what this was like elsewhere. I started seeing it in South Dakota all the time. And I I never saw it when I was there. And I don't know if it's because my parents tried to protect me from it or because you're in your little bubble, you don't really see it. Um, But I started seeing it all the time. And I was just like, wow, people do not appreciate Native people. And they have this perspective and outlook about us. And that's what really inspired me since I was little to become an advocate and to move to D.C. to become the IHS, the Indian Health Service director, or to lobby on the Hill and advocate for change. And, you know, that dream came true to move to D.C. in 2013. And I stayed there for five years and did a lot of advocacy work with a variety of organizations. But, you know, that's what life was like in Maine and simultaneously in South Dakota when I would go visit. And um, that's what inspired me to become the advocate that I am now to want to always work for my people and to work for everybody so that we don't have to have these experiences. Um, And I, as I always say too, is that especially coming from communities of color, a lot of the time we end up becoming that advocate and it's, it's not a choice as we're kind of born into it. I feel like sometimes. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was that choice of like, I got to do something like I can't, just live life and have this impact me or impact my community like things have got to change and this this is not fair um so that's what inspired me to to do the work that i'm doing now as it's evolved definitely since i first moved to dc to living in la and now we're back here in virginia outside of dc so um that's really what my experience was but there were a lot of happy moments there were a lot there are a lot of exciting moments a lot of um a lot of friends that were actual, like, really good, true, amazing friends. Um, the running community was honestly the only space that I didn't feel different in, where it mm. wasn't made obvious that I was different. And I don't know if that's because of, you know, the amazing coach that I had during high school um, or, or even college. Like, it just was how you showed up at the starting line and how you finished and being part of the, the team. And that's really what made high school survivable was having this sport was having running and was meeting new friends and 
going from a really urban, rural, um, a rural town that I was living in to like going to other meets that were more in the cities, mm -hmm. I finally got to see that diversity of other runners, which I was really looking forward to when I was younger. Right. Uh, but yeah, high school, you know, we all have our ups and downs and you all kind of wish it ends fast and you get excited for college. Yeah, right. um, but yeah, I went to school in Maine too. I went to college and ran D1 there had an amazing coach, had an incredible time, but that was the defining moment of after dealing with all of this racism and these experiences and this kind of identity crisis of who I was and not having this connection back to my culture, it was because of one professor, a native professor um, who saw me struggling. I didn't have other indigenous peoples I could connect with. My family was back living in South Dakota. My parents moved back um, after I graduated high school. And they just saw me struggling and he was just like, hey, Penobscot Indian Nation is down the, down the street, literally. Um, they're having a culture night and community round dance, you should go. And I was like, well, that's not my tribe or my people, yeah. like, I don't know. And he's like, no, you go. And yeah. like, I guarantee you, you're gonna feel community and what you're really needing right now. And so luckily one of my teammates um, said, I'll go with you, I wanna support. And like, I also wanna learn too, so. Mm. Sabrina went with me and we went there and immediately I walk into the gymnasium and before I could see anything, I just hear the drums. I hear the, oh, I smell the food. I hear the aunties and the grandmas with that. Like, I feel like we all in our families have that, like that special grandma laugh or like mm -hmm. that special laugh when the women get together and it's like evil cackly, but like hilarious at the same time. And that's what I heard. And immediately I was like, I feel like I'm home. And if it wasn't for that moment where I was having an identity crisis, where I also was simultaneously dealing with an eating disorder, if it wasn't for that professor who really believed in me and really cared about me as a student and as, as a Native student, I honestly don't know if I would be on the path that I am now. I don't know if I would have made it to D.C. because it was that big of a struggle. Um, but immediately from then, I started volunteering for the tribe. I started working for them, um, being employed by them or volunteering also running full time and taking a full course load, but that literally made the rest of my college career so much better. I was mm. so much happier and it just was like, nope, you believe in this dream. You're going to do it. You're going to go to DC. Um, and this is what you're supposed to be doing. And so it was just a, a beautiful needed reminder of who I was and how I can reconnect and uh, reconnect and get back to culturally who I am and have that beautiful reminder um, by that professor. So always internally grateful for him. And what, um, I guess like, I mean, I, I think that right like now, especially it seems that like society or whatever at large is like, so many people are just trying to find out like who they are, you know, and where they fit into all that's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, what would be like, what would be your advice to, to someone, you know, native or otherwise that like that is in that moment that you were in where it's just you, you, you feel like you're connected slightly to the things that you're doing and around but you're just missing something and you're looking for like to find more of yourself and because that journey can be really scary mm -hmm. it you know i think that you know depression is close by you know to that yep um and you know I think I'll just speak for like myself, you know, like I um, chose the life of sobriety in 2017. And if without that switch, like I would have never 
I was looking for myself somewhere, but it was in the, it was in the bottle, you know, and um, until I took that out, I, I wasn't, then I, then I was truly on like this journey to find out like, what's the whole purpose and where am I, what am I supposed to be doing, I guess. Um, so what's your advice on, for someone that's looking? That's a really hard question. Um, but I think the biggest supporting piece for that is lean on your friends, your family and your community, especially if you have that. But if you don't have the community, I think the, the best answer is to get outside, to have this reconnection to yourself so that you can feel comfortable and confident in being with yourself by yourself that you don't have to be surrounded by people to make you feel like you're there to make you feel like you're someone because i think a lot of the time we're often afraid to confront ourselves yeah. and and to have to ask ourselves these questions but also have to hear the answers that i think we're subtly like keeping quiet from ourselves yeah. and we're not talking we're not connecting the two um but i think just taking time for yourself to go outside to meditate to um, prioritize self-care in those moments, I think are going to be truly big reflecting moments for, for that person. Um, and then if it, like you said, if you have community, if you have family nearby or with you that you can lean on, definitely talk to them, connect with them, let them be that shoulder for you, let them hear you. And if it ever comes out of just like word vomit, basically, like let it all out of what you're feeling. Um, yeah. I internalized so much of that for so many years going into college and it was just coming to like a breaking point and not feeling like you had anyone to talk to about it in the struggle. Um, so that's my advice, especially for younger people who may be experiencing this too, is just please open up and don't be afraid because people do want to listen. People do want to support you. And, and to people that want to be in that support role, just be a little bit more attentive and to pay attention and to um, sometimes be the first one to ask those questions. Hey, how are you doing? Um, and that can go a long way and open up a lot more conversations. Yeah. And I think when you're in your, um, when you're, I think you're like your professor and then Sabrina, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, those that, that's like what really stood out to me was like that you were you know blessed to have people that that saw you, you know, even when you didn't necessarily see what you know what they saw. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like if he didn't if that or if that professor didn't say like, hey, check this out down the street. And then even to have Sabrina say, hey, I'll, I'll go with you. Um, that's a blessing to have, you know, people like that that will support you by steering you in the right direction and then also someone to support by like could just kind of be in like your support in that you know in in yeah. somewhere close to you um and i love the to go out like just get outside like go outside be by yourself i mean because that's what for me that's what drinking did was i didn't have to like talk to myself much you know like i didn't have to hear the thoughts and stuff that i was like assuming that other people were thinking you know and but it was all me just replaying these things in my head um, and I think that's why so many people, why running and uh, hiking and anything nature driven, um, it can be so transformative because it's yeah. like moments, even when you're running with a group of people, there's so much internal dialogue going on, you know, um, more so than if we're just sitting on our couches, like watching TV or like scrolling yeah. Instagram, there's nothing, there's never a time to yourself when you're just like, when you have all these things going on. Um, so, I, and I appreciate you sharing that, that part of it. Um, 
And then as you like, so in, I know you mentioned like, you know, kind of finding yourself in, um, in, in like in the D1, D1 sport. And then you, you mentioned, um, you know, eating disorder. Could you, I mean, do you mind talking about a little bit about that part and that journey? Um, mm-hmm. in, because I, I, I don't resonate with that. Like that's not, wasn't a thing that I had to deal with, but I think around the same time of me trying to find myself, I found alcohol, you know? So I think that there's so many parallels in a bunch of different ways to that, if you could share. Yeah. Um, so my eating disorder began in the end of high school. And it started because I was in an abusive relationship in high school. And that was my internalized way and in thinking of this is how I have control. This is what I can do. And this is also like, if I lose a couple of pounds here, I'm going to run faster. That happened, but I tanked out pretty quickly at the end of that season. Um, but I didn't learn my lesson. And it wasn't it wasn't a supportive environment. And it was also a secret I just kept to myself. So going into college and being recruited by Coach Mark Leck, who I just absolutely love, it was amazing to go into a D1 program at the University of Maine that wasn't, I think, so scary and intimidating and rigid like some of these D1 schools can be. And sure, there may be athletes that can thrive in that environment, but that is, I'm not that kind of athlete. Um, you know, our, our program, we didn't have the two a days. We didn't have these like intense lifting Mm -hmm. sessions or anything like that. Like I've seen at some other major D one schools. Um, but his philosophy was, you know, it was about the team and bringing us together and doing well together, but he really tailored much of the workouts and the connections with each of his athletes to individually, you know, he, he played to our strengths individually and let us focus on that. But also when it came together to be a team and work together on a single workout um, as a team, you know, we were doing better. And um, he didn't favor the fastest ones. Um, He favored every single one of us. And that's something that I truly appreciated and valued so much because he, our our slowest runner is just as important as our fastest runner, in my opinion. And um, he just really made it such a fun environment. And um, we all had a great relationship with him. And he's someone that I still stay in connections with um, to this day. And just that environment too, because he pays attention to each of his athletes, he's the first one that noticed that I had an eating disorder, that he knew something was off. And by the time I was a sophomore, you know, I wasn't doing well in workouts and I was really exhausted. And he was like, I think you need to go see the doctor. Um, let's get your labs tested. Let's, let's get everything right. Let's make sure. Um, and then a couple of days later, the results come back and the doctor's like, I honestly don't know like how you're alive right now and like the, the stress you've been putting your body through because all of my levels were like basically flatlined in a sense. Um, And so I was so scared to like tell Mark, my coach that, but he had such a caring um, energy and he was like, okay, he's like, well, you're not finishing this season. We're going to get you healthy and hopefully you'll be able to start the, the season for indoor. But he was like, let's just, redefine your relationship with food. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a big thing for me. You know, Um, I was working with friends and working with a nutrition there and having these check-ins with the doctors. Um, And then that also forced me to have to tell my partner at the time that I had an eating disorder that forced me to 
tell my parents for the first time. And it was really scary and like unnerving and really uncomfortable to have those kinds of conversations and the fear of judgment that they're going to have that you think they're going to have because we're in a culture where that's something you don't talk about, especially back in 2010, 11. Um, But, you know, I redefined that relationship and the biggest healing source for me was the lands. It was because the school that I went to had tons and tons of trails. And I was probably one of two, maybe three of the the female runners there that always ran on the trails unless we had to do a track workout or had to do um, a workout on pavement. We always ran on the trails. And that was something that I loved so much. And that was my biggest source of healing and like reconnection back to me as it was simultaneously happening with that indigenous indigeneity crisis for me. Um, So the lands are what really helped me get back onto a healthier track for myself and redefining my relationship with food and not seeing it as the bad guy, but seeing it as the good guy, that fuel is good and that's what you need. And I had these goals for running. And then as soon as that relationship changed and I gained the weight that my body wanted to get to naturally, Mm -hmm. um, I started seeing my times like drop. Like I smashed through the personal times that I wanted and my coach is like, well, that was easy, but now you need to make new goals. So it was like, I've never been in this kind of space before. So we had to like make new goals. And, um, you know, then I was the number two runner for the the school um, for cross country and in my distances. Um, and then I got to train with like the faster girls or some of the guys. And so it was really new to be in that space and to be like nurtured and cared for as that runner. But then again, Mark like always brought it back to, we're doing runs together as a team. We're doing this together as a team because we can't lose sight of that. Um, so that was my experience with that. But honestly, it's still a struggle. It's especially now postpartum. Um, it's still a struggle with weight and body dysmorphia and this image that I see of myself that is very new and different um, prior to having a baby. Um, and it has been triggering a, a lot during this experience and has been a struggle at times, you know, um, I've had a handful of relapses since college. Um, but right now I'm in my longest recovery since 2017. Awesome. Um, so it's still holding strong. Um, but yeah, it, there are still struggles that I have to deal with, but still holding strong. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, my, my year is 2017 too. So that was a good year for, yeah. for <laughs> um, you know, I think it's, um, some of the things that, that stood out to me were like, um, I just lost my train of thought, but when you kind of like readjusting, I, I mean, cause obviously you were getting fa- better and faster, you know, and stronger, but then were there like moments when you had, even though like the, you know, everyone else probably is like, oh, you look great, you know, and, and you can see you're getting stronger and faster where like, how did you deal with like that, that kind of battle within that you somehow envision yourself as like maybe smaller or something? Um, how does that work for you? It was a lot of like mental talking with myself. Like I had to tune that stuff out because I knew I was afraid if I would listen to that stuff, that it would give me this new image when I look at myself in the mirror of like, okay, well, I have to look like this then. Oh, this then too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but I tried to tune it out. I really tried. And I, like, I, on, the only time I ever get weighed is when I go to the doctors and I don't even want to look at it. Um, mm-hmm. I have them cover it and don't tell me. Um, because so is, it, so is it like based now, like more on like how you feel? It's then? based on how I feel. And I let my body just fluctuate with how it needs to be. And so I've noticed when I'm in like a lot of base training, um, before we start doing really higher mileage and a lot of faster workouts and stuff, you know, I am a little bit heavier and, um, that's what works for me at that during that time and period. And then as soon, you know, we all get to that like race weight, um, Mm -hmm. when we're like cutting down and training for something like I, that naturally happens, but it's a constant conversation with myself of like, Jordan, you just did this today. You need to eat. (laughs) It's okay. If you eat four or five slices of pizza, because that's what you want. Your body wants that. And it's not going to harm you. And it's just like a lot of like pep talk to myself because in the back of my head, even further, it's like, calorie counting it's no you really don't need that no you should probably do this instead um and so it's just like this really big mental struggle and a lot of conversations internally yeah well no and congratulations i mean we don't have to harp on that at all but you know congratulations to you on on this stretch that you've had and um and you look great by the way so (laughs) appreciate you i feel great yeah yeah i mean like and and then you i got i meant to say it earlier but your son is like you know, don't, don't let my son, he's the cutest kid. I'm like, Oh my God. Just, yeah. So I can't, I can't wait to see like his journey and how, and if, and if he runs or not or whatever, but um, definitely can't wait to see what, see what he does. Um, and so like, as you, we can kind of jump from like, you know, D1, you know, racing in college and um, you had your eyes set on like on DC and advocacy Um kind of briefly like what was that like experience like going from i mean because you did a lot of jumping like you did like you know it was from you know south dakota to um to to maine <laughs> and to dc you know so like what was that like and what were like there were some really cool experiences because you were on the hill battling and you know kind of fighting that fighting the fight what was that like for you it was an incredible experience it opened up this whole new community of people grassroots you know boots on the ground and that's where i feel most comfortable and thrive in that kind of environment rather than being um, in the suits and heels and walking down those hallways. Mm -hmm. Um, But I started working for National Indian Health Board and working a lot of healthcare advocacy for for, um, indigenous communities and had experience going on the hill and learning from my mentors and my bosses and like what they're doing and um, getting to tag along with other tribal leaders that were coming there from their communities and tribes to talk about some of these issues that we were helping to advocate for. Um, And they were being kind of the main voice for us. Um, And so that was really incredible. And then I took an unpaid internship with Congresswoman Shelley Pingree from the Mm -hmm. state of Maine. And because that was kind of my thing is like, I want to work on the Hill. Like I either am going to be a lobbyist or I want to work on the Hill and be a staffer in some way. Um, And I got that experience and I was just like, after attending hearings and briefings, it was a very privileged place. It was a very white space. And after attending multiple hearings and briefings and listening to the other kids that had internships behind me or around me talking about their partying the night before or that their dad bought them this condo or that they got the job because of this or that their dad wired them this money. Like I was just surrounded by kids who had money and I was working a part-time job at like $7 and 50 cents an hour 
with an unpaid internship living in DC, which was not cheap. Right. Um, so I was like really disheartened by that. And I'm like, I'm here in this briefing because I want to learn how this potentially is going to impact my community, but also people as a whole. And here I'm surrounded by people having these conversations that don't yeah. talk here. Yeah. So I made the decision to not want to work on the Hill from that moment. And I started working for the administration for Native Americans in the Department of Health and Human Services as basically like a grants manager. Um, and I got to cheer on all of these grantees from within Indian country, from tribal communities and organizations and colleges and universities that had amazing projects. And so I helped support them um, from start to finish. I got to visit their projects and, and do these site visits every year. So I got to like actually see it in real time. And it was just so exciting and was just really amazing to see that resiliency and beautiful powerful power that indigenous communities still have. Um, even after all the hardships, you know, we have something that we are thriving at and not just surviving within these systems. Um, and then simultaneously, that's when the Dakota Access Pipeline was happening at Standing Rock. And that's that year in 2016, um, my grandfather died. So it was just culmination of events of merging together. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me to, you know, be a community organizer because of my grandfather. And I organized the first um, Run for Water rally in March from the Supreme Court to the Army Corps of Engineer headquarters, where we welcomed the Standing Rock youth who ran over 2000 miles from Cannonball, North Dakota to Washington, DC to oppose the pipeline. Um, so we organized another run for them from the Supreme Court to Army Corps headquarters. And we just helped center them, their voices and what they were there to speak to. And then that's where my advocacy really kind of was born. And I started doing marches and rallies. That's where I founded Rising Hearts in 2017 of January. And we helped out with the People's Climate March. We got over 200,000 people to march in Washington, D.C. for climate justice. Um, and we did March for Racial Justice, March for Science. We did a lot of advocacy work to change the name with the Washington football team um, and just a variety of different things that we were doing. Um, and so that's what D.C. was like. And then I felt like I had accomplished all of these goals in terms of being part of community, being able to advocate and hopefully influence change, but also being able to learn about these different pathways of how to change something or bring awareness to an issue. Um, and I felt like I reached my threshold there. I felt like I'd done more than I'd ever dreamed of in D.C. Um, I always kind of thought it was it's going to be a bill. It's going to be some sort of policy. Right. Right, but right. it wasn't that at all. It was really being in the community that I was with. And so that's what led me to move from D.C. to L.A. to um, work for the Tribal Law and Policy Institute and work on a variety of initiatives to end violence against Indigenous women and communities. Um, and that's where the other part of my advocacy really started to grow and foster into what it is today, where I dedicate every single run that I do to missing and murdered indigenous peoples, to bring awareness to the epidemic, to bring awareness to the families and the advocacy groups that are doing something, um, to bring awareness to the fundraisers that they're they're trying to bring visibility to, to pay for search and rescues, to pay for all these other services, or to pay for the funeral expenses if their loved one has been found. Um, and then also just bringing visibility as a whole and, and bringing hopefully solutions or pathways for people to participate by organizing prayer runs, by organizing virtual runs for people to join in as allies and co-conspirators within this hard work that, you know, not just myself, but so many others that are doing. Well, and so, and I had a question mark on it. What, so can you like tell me what prayer runs are and like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think if you ask any person, uh, are 
definitions would be a little bit different. But um, for me, how I define prayer runs is creating an intentional space and time to really fully dedicate and commit to running for something more than yourself. And running can be a selfish sport, selfish sport. You know, um, we have our own personal goals and aspirations and things that we want to do. And, um, you know, that became very apparent to me in the big difference of it, of giving that up was at the 2019 Boston Marathon. Um, that's where after organizing marches and panels to bring a visibility to this issue of MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, um, and the erasure of it, the invisibility of this issue, and it never getting the time of day for this to be talked about, um, I chose to give up on that. You know, like, what's the point of me even doing this work if no one cares? If only Indigenous people keep showing up, it can't be us because we're already doing the work all the time. We need people to help support us. Um, so that's what led me to do the prayer run at Boston. It was like, I'm going to run this marathon and dedicate it to 26 missing and murdered indigenous peoples and say their name, say a prayer for them, for their family, for the community and for our next generations, and then try and enjoy the remaining mile before it starts all over again, before I say the next name. Um, and it's just about spiritually connecting with who or what you're praying for. Mm. And it's really kind of a meditative, repetitive state, at least for me, that I'm in when I'm when I'm carrying these prayers, when I bring my my sage or my tobacco bundle that I'm also running with as an offering, you know, to help carry and lift those prayers up. Um, you know, it's about prayer runs are also being about community. You know, I did a 360 mile prayer run um, from Bears Ears to Salt Lake City, Utah in September 2020. And it was 10 Native people carrying prayers and bringing visibility to what is happening in, with COVID and the lack of resources and infrastructure that wasn't being, that wasn't supportive of Indigenous communities that were being left behind um, at that time. So it's all about that connection, but also something higher than yourself, something more than your own personal. It's giving that up to have that intentional space for someone else. Um, and can you share, cause I know, it, can you share a little bit more about the MMIW and you know, what that, what that means, what it is, um, some numbers to kind of bring that to life. And so people can connect with that a little bit more. Yeah. So the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women is how um, it began and got, you know, the visibility of that before it became a hashtag or anything like that. I reference to it as missing and murdered indigenous relatives or peoples because it's an epidemic that includes everyone. You know, we have men, women, grandparents, babies, children, um, two spirits, trans people that are being murdered or have gone missing. Um, but it began with bringing visibility to the, to the missing women. And it started in Canada and, um, it started to bring visibility to a highway. I think it was Highway 16 in Canada, which is referenced as the Highway of Tears because high rates of Indigenous women were going missing from that highway because they were they were walking or they were hitchhiking because their communities were so far away um, or their bodies were being found um, on that highway. And so that's what led to this movement and to their community, to their relatives and family bringing visibility to this issue and how our CMP, the government um, within Canada, weren't doing anything. They weren't doing enough. 
um, to look into and investigate, you know, and support the families that were looking for their loved ones. Um, and so as it's evolved and has grown into the U.S. and now this bigger movement of um, bringing awareness to this epidemic and issue, it's we got to talk about colonialism, you know, yeah. this conquering mindset, this um you got to talk about um, the fetishization of indigenous women. You know, I will bring it back to that movie, Disney, Pocahontas. It created this look of how indigenous women look, how we act. Um, and it really hypersexualizes indigenous women. And sadly, this creates, you know, this image and this even fetishization and this fantasy of indigenous women and what contributes to these high rates of violence in these acts when those fantasies aren't enough, that's when these acts become real. Um, also because, you know, people think of indigenous peoples as lesser than. And so why not commit this act on this kind of person because they mean nothing. That's kind of the mentality. Or people commit these acts because of the jurisdictional loopholes that exist within reservations. Um, if a non-native commits these acts, you know, Tri tribal nations are not able to prosecute non-native offenders on their own lands. Um, slowly that is changing with the Violence Against Women Act and the Special um, Domestic Violence Criminal Jurisdiction Pilot Program, which is working with some tribal sovereign nations to um, for them to actually implement their own criminal codes and in their own courts to actually prosecute non-native offenders in their own courts. And it's proving to work that we know how to do this. We know um, uh, how to enforce the law. And um, hopefully that changes where every single nation can do that. Um, so people, there's this phrase called open season, you know, that people know that these jurisdictional loopholes exist. This is what contributes to human and drug sex trafficking across tribal lands. Um, people know it exists, that they know that they can get away with it. Um, and then we have, you know, just stereotypes and racism that contributes and to perpetuates this violence on indigenous peoples. Um, so there are so many factors that go into it, but just since you wanted numbers, mm -hmm. in 2016, there were 5,712 cases of reported indigenous women um, and children that have gone missing. And only 116 were logged into the Department of Justice database. And when these indigenous peoples of families are reporting their loved ones missing if they're not making sure that the police officer is writing their report down accurately and if the officer isn't being mindful of it um and they don't check the box american indian alaska native native american however it's labeled it'll miss it'll miss it can misgender them if they don't check their right boxes and it'll default to labeling them caucasian um, so not only do our relatives go missing in life, they go missing in the data just like that. And they go missing in the media because they're never put in the media. They're never put in the spotlight to give that visibility and awareness to what's happening. Um, my friend, I just recently dedicated um, a prayer run and a race to her nephew, um, Andre Starr, and he was missing, you know, he had just vanished and disappeared. So I dedicated my trail half marathon um, during Halloween weekend to him to bring visibility to the flyer, to bring visibility to his name and to the family. And then sadly, just a couple, few weeks ago, um, right before Trucegiving, um, AKA Thanksgiving, um, they found his body. And 
it's it happens all the time. It's happening everywhere. Um, you know, I have a cousin who was murdered. You know, I'm a survivor of violence. My mom's a survivor of violence. You know, I don't know, especially not just in all the indigenous women in my life, but women in general, all of them are survivors of violence in some way, shape or form and some form of abuse. And that's just really heartbreaking. Um, so a lot of my advocacy work through running is not only to bring awareness through prayers to, to say their name, to let them know in the spirit world that someone's thinking about them, not that that's not just their family, that someone else cares. Right. Uh, also bring visibility to the campaigns, to the organizations that are doing 24 seven work offering hotlines, offering resources and whatever they can to support the families that are searching or that are in the justice system fighting, that yeah. are providing safe houses, that are providing all of these resources to them, that are a majority of them are all underfunded, that they need more funding. Um, so that's why I've hosted virtual runs and all of the stuff where we've donated, I would say at least out of the over 250,000 we've raised, I would say over 100,000 of that have been only dedicated to um, organizations that have focus on MMIW and this advocacy work or to other advocates, to MMIR families specifically who have lost a loved one. Um, you know, we are so, we are not far removed from it. You know, we either have a relative or a friend or someone we know directly that has been missing or is murdered. Um, or we know someone who knows someone. And so it's a really heartbreaking reality. And it's not just a reservation issue. That's a common misconception. It's an issue everywhere, urban, rural, um, reservation, you know, it's everywhere. Um, and the version that I would say that highway of tears in Canada, the version for it here in the U S is highway I 90 up North all the way to Seattle. And a lot of people have gone missing. And a lot of those highest rates have gone missing are from, the Montana area and the other highest rates of people going missing are down in the Southwest and Seattle. Um, and it's just really a heartbreaking issue. And I would love for the media to do something more than just potentially write an article. You know, we need accountability on all sides um, in terms of media, in terms of the justice system, in terms of law enforcement, we need more laws like Savannah's Act, Hannah's Act, um, Not Invisible Act, the Violence Against Women Act, um, to do to make sure that it's being upheld and that they're doing their job of making sure that funding is being appropriated to support the families or the communities or the organizations doing this work. We need to make sure that we're working with law enforcement to really eradicate the racism that exists within those institutions, um, because a lot of the time that determines how much support they're going to offer because they rely on the racism in a lot of these places. They chop it up to that's another drunk Indian. Oh, they're probably out partying. They're out doing this. They'll be back. And by that time, days have gone by when those days could have been crucial in finding the person alive. And sadly, sometimes they are found deceased. Um, so yeah, it's a big issue. It's so many layers and it's complex, but at the heart of it, you know, we have the community here um, of advocates and organizations and the families that are really leading these efforts and bringing awareness to this movement. Um, and the red handprint, um, which is from my prayer run at the Boston Marathon, that really is what got a lot of attention, um, you know, symbolizes the silence voices that have been taken and that are missing. And red represents, you know, the color that, you know, 
our ancestors will see when they're transitioning and um, it represents the movement as well um, as a whole. And so this is something that I'm super passionate about. And this is a, much of the heartwork advocacy that I do every single day and working with our, our partners and collaborators that are leading this work too. And just me providing the platform and resources that I have access to as the runner, as the advocate, however I'm being labeled um, to try and bring more awareness for them, to try and bring them and introduce them into other maybe platforms or connections that they may not have thought of that could help bring even bigger visibility to support their work or um, other creative fundraising opportunities that we can try and do for them to support their hard work and support the families and the survivors that they're working with. And then you, you referenced uh, the red handprint over your, over your mouth um, as you, in the first time I saw that um, it was like, I think that I was probably just like scrolling Instagram or something and then like scrolled past it and then had to go back. Like what, like what's going on? I mean, it's a, it's a very pronounced and like loud statement. Um, and for it to mean, you know, to represent the silence voices, I think that it's like the, the visual of it is just, is, is, I mean, it's sad that you have to do that, but it's an amazing visual and um, really like proud and happy for you and for everyone that you that you advocate for that there's you know, that they have someone in front um, and pushing that will will put herself out there like the the, the way you do. Um, so I'm, I'm not the only runner that does it. You got no, no, fish. You got yeah. all these other runners and even athletes that I think that's if you could ask me and I'm just gonna pretend you asked me like what my proudest moment through all of this is in terms of like running and advocacy. Well, let, me ask, moment. Let, me, let me ask you then, what is your proudest moment? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was the unexpected of being able to inspire people. And, yeah. you know, Rosalie Fish is my little sister and I will fight and protect her for ever for as long as I can. But the fact that she was younger than me and saw what I did and wanted to do the same thing. And then she did it and then even got more attention for it. And, is just doing so much incredible work, even behind the scenes. You know, a lot of people don't see all the work that we're doing besides that picture we post, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but her to inspire other athletes. And now we're seeing like high school teams dedicating a cross country race and wearing the red handprint and painting the letters on their body because they care because they're coming from these communities that have some of the highest rates. Like um, I think it was the Harden cross country team out in Montana. They did it, I think two two Novembers ago or two Decembers ago. Um, but then you have like Lauren Shad, who is a Nike and seven ambassador and a professional volleyball player. She did it too overseas when she was playing professionally. Um, we've seen football players that are doing it and pro professionally, but also, you know, just in general at their high school or a college mm -hmm. level. Um, and so we're seeing this really possible way of being able to advocate through a variety of different ways, a, wide, a variety of different methods, but also being able to do it authentically, um, that's to ourself, but also for the movement of what yeah. we're advocating for. And we're seeing that branch out to other runners from different communities and different advocacy platforms that are doing the same with running. And I think it's just so beautiful that running can also serve that purpose to build community, to create awareness, to, um, you know, hopefully, fight for a better future in that sense. But um, it's also a fine line by 
using running as a as a form of advocacy when it also is your form of like disconnection and mental health and well-being right. so it's like finding that balance of what's too much what's like what where is that balance of how can i do this sustainably without burning out um and so my first year in doing those prayer runs and dedicating every run to missing and murdered indigenous peoples that was the most burnt out and most like depressed and heartbreaking that i ever had felt um, and I had to take two months off of running and literally it was every day in those two months. Are you ready to run today? Nope. Okay. Next day. Are you ready to run today? Nope. And then got to two months and three days and I was like, yes, I'm, I'm ready to run. And that's also when I like went back into working with my therapist cause I took several months off. Um, but that's all what got me back on track of like finding what works for me. How can I still do this meaningful and sustainable, but also protecting myself. Yeah, I mean, I know that can be, I mean, that's got to be really tough to like carry um, and to be involved in so much advocacy and then still have to um, be, you know, your mental, your mental health has to, you, you do have to do things for yourself as well. I mean, you do have to, to make sure that you're still running for the right reasons and even doing the advocacy work for the right reasons, you know. Yeah. Um, and so now that you have a 10, 10 month old, you know, baby boy, you know, crawling around right now um what's next for you when it, you know, it comes to running advocacy what's next that you're excited about yeah so right now what's next what i'm training for i'll be happy to share is the boston marathon oh it's my god gonna be... i'm gonna be running it too so we have to like, right. i'll see you there we'll have to connect yeah. yeah um that'll be four years since my last time at boston which was that prayer run so i'm really yeah. excited we're working closely with baa for some land acknowledgement stuff and hopefully some oh. programming um but yeah, I'm looking forward to that personally. And then, you know, advocacy wise through running, we have our running on native lands, virtual and in-person runs coming up February 5th through February 12th of 2023. Then we have our Earth Day 5K, which is going to bring awareness to climate justice efforts and why we need to protect the earth, but how it's also connected to the missing and murdered indigenous people's movement. Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about um, climate justice that's often left out of the conversation. Um, and then we have our sixth annual Running for Justice in-person and virtual run um, for May 5th, which is National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Peoples. Um, so we're looking forward to that. We got a big first five months going um, and then potentially organizing a prayer run from where I live to DC, which is like definitely over a hundred miles um, okay. organizing a group of hopefully runners that will want to join and do a relay style where we arrive at the Supreme court or at Congress on May 5th and bring and creating a campaign to bring visibility for it. Okay. I was, so, yeah, I'm like, the May 5th. So I'm trying to figure out like, I'm like, that's not that far from, that's not that far after Boston either. So nope. Um, yeah. <laughs> If you can't find anybody else, you know, I'll volunteer. Oh. But that's like a small raise of hand. Like, I don't know. Oh, yeah. I'll reach yeah. out to you. Oh, dang. Friends, I just, allies, and runners in general don't have to be just indigenous. shouldn't have said anything. I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> I'm going to just write your name down. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, um, I, you, you said one of your proudest moments. The wonderful question I asked, I asked, of course, what was your yep. proudest moment? Um you know the fact that you said that you're you're able to inspire um you've inspired you've you've you inspired me before this 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 conversation um but 
just hearing you, you know, I'm I'm super inspired and 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 motivated to kind of continue to do the the work that that I'm doing or trying to do. Um, so I appreciate you know, your willingness to share all of this and your uh, you and everyone else who is doing it as well, but you in particular for um, you know, the courage and the bravery to, to put yourself out there. I mean, because it's not like you are. I mean, you're you're fighting against. Uh, powerful forces, you know, really, you know, when you think about like who you're talking about, you know, in, in yeah. um, laws and government things and, and it, it's not just like, Hey, stop treating us this way. It's like, yeah. it's a, a, a wildly systemic I- issue. Um, and I appreciate your, your bravery in the, in this arena to continue to push. And um, I guess I'll just leave it with that. And I just want to say, you know, I'd love to be a part of or help with anything that I can. Um, and I will make sure that I continue to learn more about all the things that you that you have going on and in, in the organizations that you have uh, running as well. So thank you so much for uh, being on the show. Um, this is by far one of like, I, I don't know if you can tell, but I almost cried like twice. So I don't want <laughs> to really get there. That easily, but I appreciate you. Thank you so much. And um, I can't wait to see what happens next. And I will see you in Boston. Yeah, Wopi Latanka, many thanks and appreciate you too. Looking forward to Boston. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode um, and that conversation. Like I said, we covered a lot here. Um, I didn't expect to connect in so many different ways with her. Um, And this one was actually a pretty heavy one for me. Like after we ended this conversation, I just sat in silence for like five minutes, which is a long time for me. Um, But just because it was just such a heavy conversation, um, so powerful, so helpful, so inspiring. And there's issues that, you know, in this country that we just have to address and we have to work with people like Jordan to figure out where we can fit in in those movements and in those those initiatives and in those. um, What ways can we just help to help make change? Because things that are happening and that happen are just wrong for, you know, for black folks, for you know, any other minority for indigenous folks or whatever it is. I mean, we have to realize that these things happen and take steps to to work towards change. And um, just hearing some of the stories and some of the realities that uh, that her people face are it just sucks. I mean, it honestly just is a terrible thing to hear. Um, But then it also is super relatable. So Thank you so much for checking this episode out. Uh, we did talk about running a little bit there, so that was fun. Um, but I think I think that it's important that if I'm able to have these conversations, we push it past running. And hopefully you enjoy these conversations as well. Uh, if you do, uh, please leave a uh, review. Uh, if you don't, that's fine. You can leave a review too, but you know, I'd rather not. Um, <laughs> but leave a review, uh, share the pod, um, and shoot me a dm or whatever on instagram if you like or don't like or whatever and we can have conversations about these conversations so thank you for sticking in there with me episode 92 is in the books thank you so much jordan make sure you all subscribe to the podcast 
follow Jordan and the Run Eat Sleep Show on Instagram. And I love you. Run, eat, sleep, and repeat.